The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. His talent was as natural as the pattern that was made by the dust on a butterfly's wings. That's Ernest Hemingway talking about his friend and fellow author, F. Scott Fitzgerald. They were the pole stars of the lost generation, the collection of young American authors who came of age in the Paris and New York of the 1920s, the period also known as the Jazz Age. The Hemingway-Fitzgerald relationship has been examined for decades and continues to fascinate. Why are we so drawn to these two authors? What do they represent in American literature? Who was the better writer, and why? These are becoming age-old questions as waves of readers discover their works afresh. Is there anything new to be said, and can there possibly be ten new things? That's the challenge I put to my friend Mike, the president of the Literature Supporters Club, the great Hemingway-Fitzgerald debate, today on the History of Literature. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, so we're here to talk about the great debate, Hemingway versus Fitzgerald. This is a debate that seems like it's going on for a long time and it seems likely to continue. I thought what we could do is uh, see if we can come up with 10 new arguments, five each. And I think this was my idea to do this Hemingway versus Fitzgerald, but I gave you first choice and you chose to defend Fitzgerald. All right. Well, my first reason is that Fitzgerald wrote exceptionally well about children. Mm. So, um, and uh, for the life of me, I can't remember a single child character in any Hemingway. <laughs> <laughs> novel. The only Hemingway child in a short story that is memorable is Indian Camp, which mm -hmm. uh, ha has, um, I, I don't want to give it away, but it's definitely uh, a, probably my favorite Hemingway short story. And uh, there is a child in there that is depicted quite well. But anyway, so uh, the, the short story of Fitzgerald's that um, comes to mind is Babylon Revisited. Mm-hmm. Again, without giving it away, the, I can give the setup, which is a dissolute couple 
in Paris, an American couple in Paris, not unlike Sarah and Gerald Murphy or mm-hmm. F. Scott and his wife Zelda. They're in Paris having a grand, grand old time, and then the wife dies, and they have a young daughter who the main character, the Fitzgerald Stanton, says, I'm, I'm a busy guy, and you know, I enjoy staying out late. I can't take care of my daughter. And he turns to his his deceased wife's sister and says, can you watch over her? Mm. And she agrees to it, and she ends up watching over her for a year. Mm. Uh, and then the, the main character cleans up his act, becomes sober, goes back to the U.S., makes some money, comes back to Paris with the... The short story is really about children. He comes back to Paris to get his daughter back. And it's if you haven't read it, it's a beautiful story because mm. the, the girl at some point just clutches the dad. Mm. And I had the benefit of having read the story the first time before I became a parent. Mm-hmm. And the second time uh, I read it, I, you know, I, I have a, I have a daughter and, you know, I forget how old she was, but I was reading it on the subway and I got teary eyed. Oh. And I can't remember the last time a short story had that effect. Right, right. Because normally I'm very down on short stories. I think they're too short. <laughs> Right. Well, I'll concede that that's a positive aspect of Fitzgerald's character. He had some letters that he wrote. I have his collected letters, and and the letters he wrote to his daughter are are very striking. And I think it's consistent with Fitzgerald's openness and generosity and his empathy in life, if not always in his fiction. He was a a tender-hearted guy, and it really came out uh, first through his love for Zelda when she was younger. I think things hit hit rockier times as they got older, but it was always there for Scotty, his daughter. And I have this thing on my blog that I posted, which is an animated, it's a short clip of Scott Fitzgerald, Zelda Fitzgerald, and their baby, and the three of them are laughing. And it's it's just a beautiful clip. It's about three seconds long, but it's really... Wow. Really great to see. I think you're probably right that Fitzgerald did did children better. Hemingway had uh, he talked about his son Bumby in uh, I uh, guess yeah. that was probably in a movable feast where he's talking about the early days when they were young and hungry and in Paris and they had this this child. And then there's also that story I remember where do you remember the story where there's a a kid who it's about a kid who hears his temperature in Fahrenheit, I guess, and he's confused and he thinks it's Celsius, and so he spends the night thinking he's going to die from fever. <laughs> but that's kind of a, a one-joke premise, and maybe that's not quite uh, quite on the level of Babylon Revisited. You know, I, bringing up letters, I I read an old letter of his that he wrote to his daughter when she was 11, and uh, I'll read you part of it, but it, it said, Dear Scotty, things to worry about. Worry about courage. Worry about cleanliness. <laughs> worry about efficiency. Worry about horsemanship. Now, <laughs> this, this is good. He goes, things not to worry about. Don't worry about popular opinion. Don't worry about dolls. Don't worry about the past. Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about growing up. Don't worry about triumph. Don't worry about mosquitoes. Don't worry about boys. <laughs> don't worry about satisfactions 
And then lastly, things to think about. What am I really aiming at? How good am I really in comparison to my contemporaries in regard to A, scholarship, B, do I really understand about people and am I able to get along with them? C, am I trying to make my body a useful instrument or am I neglecting it? With dearest love, your dad. <laughs> okay, I think he was writing that from the bottle of a, a gin bottle. <laughs> from the sorry, from the bottom of a gin bottle. That sounds to me like he's he's talking about himself out loud. <laughs> okay, not bad. I am going to give that argument uh because I did not anticipate it. Uh I'm going to give that an eight. Oh, that's pretty good. Thank you. Very, very original. Uh, but I'm not totally convinced. Okay, here's my number one, which is that uh, when you look at the arc of their careers, and Hemingway wrote a lot more and a lot longer, and even so, Fitzgerald managed to have a lower uh, bottom than Hemingway. He is <laughs> the worst of Fitzgerald is so far below the worst of Hemingway. The Pat Hobby stories are probably the low point for either author. I don't know if you've read those. I tried rereading them in preparation for this, and I only got through uh, Pat Hobby's Wish for Christmas, um, <laughs> which, I mean, for those who don't know, the Pat Hobby stories are written basically for money when Fitzgerald was in Hollywood and, and trying to make ends meet, trying to pay off debts, and he was he was sinking sort of slowly drinking himself to death and then he would dry out for six weeks and he would would take these jobs at Hollywood Studios to try to earn some money but he wasn't doing very well and and all of this went into his pad hobby stories but not in the way you might think which is that this is kind of a rich territory for his fiction but in a kind of O. Henry-esque stories but with little odd twists and turns and Pat Hobby is always desperate for someone to give him a salary of $250 a week but it's just got all of the worst of Fitzgerald when he's almost where he can't take himself seriously he's trying to be a serious artist but he knows the material he's working with is really poor and the outcome is just almost unreadable <laughs> And that was probably not as low as Fitzgerald went because he also wrote a play called The Vegetable or From President to Postman, which was <laughs> <laughs> which almost nobody has ever read. Uh, it's it was produced uh, when he was young. And the story was about a guy who had a lifelong dream of becoming a male clerk and on the way accidentally became president of the United States. And it was it was so bad. Zelda later said that it fell as flat as one of Aunt Jemima's famous pancakes. And it was so bad that Fitzgerald, Scott Fitzgerald and Zelda went to see it with Ring Lardner, who was like his best friend, uh, probably the nicest guy who, you know, Fitzgerald had in his life. And Ring Lardner and his wife went with Scott and Zelda to opening night, and they left before the play <laughs> before the play was over because so many people were walking out that they decided, well, what's the point of staying? We're not, we're not going to stay either. So Stop. completely terrible. I I know Hemingway had some bad books too. Yeah, Garden of Eden. 
Garden of Eden. Okay, Garden <laughs> of Eden was posthumous. I'm I'm ruling out his three posthumous novels. They're all bad. Garden of Eden, Islands in the Stream, and True at First Light. But they're posthumous, so I'm I'm not counting those. Uh, his bullfighting books, he had two of them. One of them, Death in the Afternoon, I don't think is very good at all. Okay. I still think it's better than the Pat Hobby stories. Yeah. Uh, Green Hills of Africa, I'm not counting because it's nonfiction. I'm not <laughs> counting Torrents of Spring because it was a spoof. And some say it was to get out of a, his early contract that he, he published that thing. It was a novella that made fun of Sherwood Anderson. And then the... Only one I really can't defend is Across the River and Into the Trees. And I'm just I'm just giving him a mulligan on that, that he wrote enough novels it was okay to have one bad one. I will agree with you that the Pat Hobby stories are, are <laughs> basically unreadable. I, I have read them, but I, I was, uh, I think, 18 years old in two months. So, um, but, I, but I'll argue that the best of... Fitzgerald is better than the best of Hemingway ah. and uh, Tender Tender's the Night and uh, Great Gatsby and I, I don't think you can measure up measure Hemingway's two best against that. Mm. I mean, Farewell to Arms, it, you know, it is is really a young person's book and um, uh, that that's, that's considered probably his second best book after Sun Also Rises. Mm-hmm. So is this your? Are you on to so, your second argument? No, no, no. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> that was so... just my just this my retort to <laughs> the attack on Pat Hobby. <laughs> okay. Well, I was going to give my argument a nine, but I'll drop it down to an eight in deference to the uh the, at their peak uh Fitzgerald was stronger than Hemingway. I think yeah, it'd be hard to pick the two best Hemingway novels i guess it would be maybe farewell to arms and the sun also rises yeah. or, or uh, maybe 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 the sun also rises and put an asterisk next to a movable feast yeah a movable feast is good although he's gets pretty nasty in that sometimes it's yeah that's, that's coming up in my reasons okay <laughs> and i think hemingway you probably have to to count uh not in an entire collected works of short stories but maybe about 20 or 25 would probably stand up there with mm-hmm. you know as as good as any of his novels so yeah. okay yeah so let's hear your number two so my number two is um nobody uh wrote better about in, in more depth about being rich and uh the man and class manners and you know I, I think a lot of people think of Fitzgerald as writing only about the rich and I think he, you know, th- there's far more subtlety to it that he was really so concerned with class and station in life that I would argue, bear with me, I would argue that he has a class consciousness that is, uh, you know, something that Marxist critics like George Lukash or Frederick Jameson would, would love to analyze and have analyzed. So, would have analyzed. I mean, Lukash, you know, predated Fitzgerald, but, you know, Jameson writes about Fitzgerald and I, mm-hmm. I think you know he is so immersed in class but really as an outsider he, he comes from a fallen well-to-do family and his his mother ingrained in him you know social ambition it's reported that his the first word he said was not ma but up <laughs> <laughs> and I mean in his, 
I mean, in short stories like Diamond as the Big as the Ritz, which mm-hmm. again, if you haven't read, that's a it's it's an amazing story. It's about a family so rich that they live in um, an area of Montana where there's a cliff that's made out of diamond. Mm-hmm. But they've been. Oh, I'll, I'll just this is a spoiler alert. If you haven't read it, you know, don't listen to this. But they they're so rich because they don't pay taxes and have been ripping off the government and ripping off other other business associates and so they but they have children and again he writes really well about these children so this family has two kids that they have to entertain during the summer so they tell their kids that they can invite they can, a boy and a girl each can invite one classmate and they come and spend the summer there and they they, you know, the family lives decadently. They eat and drink well. They play and they have lavish toys. And then at the end of the summer, the kids are killed. Mm. And it, right. it is so dark. <laughs> and it's so much about, like, the way the rich think of other people. Right, right. And to be chosen and then to be to spend the summer. And the kids have no idea. And there, there's some crazy descriptions, like the bed's pop up upright and they slot the kids through a tunnel that deposits you at the breakfast table. Right. And so it reminds me now thinking of it, it reminds me a little roll doll. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like his kind of idea. You know, he, when you said he's that nobody did class better, I'm going to say that maybe no American did class better. I think the, I think the Brits are much better at, at class and and the gradations and it's hard because that's that's one of the things that I like least about Fitzgerald. I hate the the striving and he does have this genuine admiration for the rich that I find difficult. On the other hand, I think he was he's unfairly targeted or or classified a lot of times as having like you said, you know, he he's unfairly portrayed as being too deferential to the rich or too admiring. And in fact, it's more complicated than that. And I don't know. It, the thing that I come back to is that story where Hemingway made fun of Fitzgerald for the Fitzgerald character says the rich are different from you and me. And Hemingway says, yes, they have more money. And apparently that was completely fictional, that it was a line that somebody else used and, and Hemingway stole it and he put it in the mouth of Fitzgerald and he he kind of tarred him with that brush but I think what I would like to give Fitzgerald credit for at least is that he was taking these issues on and they're such American issues and I think that's probably why The Great Gatsby is often given all of the credit that it is is because we don't see it a lot in American fiction as much as we probably should that it takes a kind of upper middle class uh, for granted and it doesn't show the the movement and the envy and the mm-hmm. the outsider's view and the striving that America has. we A lot of authors, I think, probably avoid that because it's unseemly, but it's definitely a part of America, and it, it Fitzgerald is definitely kind of the poet of that subject. Yeah, I mean, little stories like uh, Bernice Bob's Her Hair, which I was rereading, mm-hmm. you know, and... Uh, I don't know if people don't know this story. Bernice is a wealthy girl, but from outside the city and come, go, goes to visit her cousin. And the, the cousin kind of feels like Bernice is a drag in her social life, but takes pity on Bernice. So uh, the cousin teaches Bernice how to hold inter- interesting conversations and flirt with boys. And then 
Bernice becomes so good at it that her, the cousin sort of tricks her and says you should get a new haircut. Mm-hmm. And she bobs her hair, which at the time was considered um, really uh, liberate, uh, only a liberated woman would, would do, and it causes a big scandal. So Bernice has to sneak out of town in the middle of the night. But right. before she leaves, she cuts her cousin's two braids off. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Okay, so I'm going to give that argument a seven because <laughs> I kind of anticipated that you'd do something with the rich, that that would be some part of this. Okay, my number two is, oh, it's Fitzgerald died at the wrong age. That he was <laughs> he was young, but he was not young enough. He was 44, and it made me think, it reminded me of when I used to live in Ann Arbor, and I would say, you know, this would be the perfect place to live if you were 19, and it would be a great place to live if you were 45, but if, if you're 28, it's you're kind of the wrong age to be here. And 44 was just the wrong age for Fitzgerald to die. He had such a sad last few years. It was just kind of pathetic. And maybe I'm uh, weighing this a little too heavy because of the Pat Hobby stories. But but (laughs) it just made me think, you know, as far as a character, I mean, obviously, I want everyone to live as long as they can. And I'm, I'm not wishing death on anyone. But as a figure and as a literary figure, he really is somebody who probably should have died young. If he had died uh, at age 29 after The Great Gatsby had come out, he'd probably be in the pantheon of, uh, you know, like Keats or Rimbaud or these people who we always wonder what if. And then I thought, well, what if he lived to be long? What if he lived to be older? What if he lived a lot longer? And if he had lived to be 100... He would have died in 1996, and I took a look at some of the books that were published in 1996 to think, well, what if he was lived to be 100 and he was still writing reviews? And the books he could have reviewed in 1996 would have been uh, Bridget Jones's Diary, which would be interesting to hear his take on that. Sex in the City would be another one. He's got such a New York, you know, he kind of pioneered that whole coming to New York and, and living it up. Infinite Jest, uh, which is another uh, interesting idea to think of what he would have made of that book and of David Foster Wallace at a young age because he himself had such a a prodigious beginning. And Drown by Juno Diaz. So, you know, it's really kind of, you hate to blame him, but on the other hand, why not? It's he, he should have died at 29 or at 100, but 44 is just the wrong age well i you know all i can say is that i guess hemingway had something <laughs> in the cards blowing his head off <laughs> well his his death was a little uh it's a little more interesting and he had to, you know his father had committed suicide and he had always had that in mind as as a possibility and then he didn't die the hemingway's you know he survived two plane crashes and he had all of these had kind of an interesting relationship with death. So I'm going to give Hemingway a few points for uh, cheating death and then succumbing to death in a more interesting and writer worthy way. So I'm going to give, uh, I'm going to give that argument a (laughs) 7.5. All right. So I always, I always say that the, 
the, the, your number three batter should be the best hitter on the team. So. <laughs> uh oh. So, uh, for number three, basically Fitzgerald was a nicer person, but I think mm. more specifically, he helped the young Hemingway and far more than I, than I knew. I, as I did some digging, uh, I know that he, when he met uh, Hemingway, uh, and you know Fitzgerald was already established, uh, well established. He would tell his friends that you know there's this writer Hemingway, and he you know is essentially superior to a lot of contemporaries. That was his quote. Right. Uh, and he would he would say, "Why don't you write a nice essay about Hemingway's stories and his writing style?" Um, but not only did he do that, but and I didn't know this, but he was quite instrumental in um, helping Hemingway shape The Sun Also Rises. He had written a 10-page critique mm. of The Sun Also Rises. And uh, he was a bit of a, Fitzgerald was a bit of a go-between between Maxwell Perkins, who really wanted to tear apart The Sun Also Rises, mm-hmm. and uh, Hemingway, who, who you know, wanted to uh, dig in and fight back. And so Fitzgerald was able to convince Hemingway to cut scenes and to rewrite some Robert Cohen passages, you know, work on the beginning. And then at the end, after Hemingway had made a lot of Fitzgerald's changes and improved the book, Fitzgerald didn't even want to get credit. He he said that it's just something that one writer would do to help another. And so uh, Hemingway signed a version of the book when it came out and became a success to Fitzgerald and he wrote uh, where it said the sun also rises he added the parenthetical like your cock if you have one and at the <laughs> bottom he wrote um, a greater great Gatsby written with the friendship of F. Scott Fitzgerald mm. and I, I, I was strangely touched <laughs> Because uh, here, I think in an earlier podcast, I might have said that Hemingway, you know, liked to kick Fitzgerald yeah. when he was down, and so here was a little bit of a, I guess, uh, a moment where Hemingway felt like he could be generous, having yeah. written such a successful book. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna hold off on the scoring of that one because my number three, this is <laughs> gonna be pulling a a little juice. Uh, sorry, jujitsu move on you, which is my number three was that Fitzgerald couldn't stop admiring Hemingway and it showed his bad taste. <laughs> um, there's just something a little pathetic about it. It's like uh, a lover who doesn't know when it's over. And even when Hemingway would be vicious to Fitzgerald, he would still, you know, my apologies, Ernest. I guess you could say that it's, it's part of his a strong part of his character in that he would let bygones be bygones and i think at one point he says i'm not a hater i've i've never been good for the at the hate thing or something like <laughs> something like that like hemingway was probably trying to have a feud with him and and fitzgerald just couldn't bring himself to do it because he admired hemingway so much i think you have the better of the argument on this because it's basically a better position to be in <laughs> Um, it, it's a nicer position to take. It shows that you're, you're, you're on the side of the angels on this one. So I'm going to give you an eight and myself a seven. <laughs> so my, my fourth argument is, is, is related to 
to, to being nice. I, I, I thought that Scott's memoirs were just better. I know everyone loves Movable Feast, but I think uh, Scott, when you look at the body of F. Scott Fitzgerald's oh, letters. Which is, oh, the letters and the, yeah. the, the crack up. The, well, okay, the crack up, uh, <laughs> parts of the crack up are, are, are worthwhile, but right. but the, the volume of letters, and, uh, I mean, the anecdotes. Apparently, one of the first mm. stories he ever wrote was about uh, an epic struggle between large animals and small animals, and the leader was the fox, <laughs> and the this. It's probably the blueprint for a lot of his writing. The small small animals won the first battle, but then the sheer size of the elephants and lions and tigers eventually overwhelmed them. Ah. And uh, Scott identified with the small animals, and he said, I can almost weep now when I think of that poor fox in the story. And he wrote the story when he was a child? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he had such a doomed, tragic life. I mean, there's so many... So many parts when you're reading his letters where you, especially in those years where he's struggling with Zelda, who's having such struggles of her own, and he's struggling with money, and he's he's can't stop drinking, and he's unhealthy, and it's just, and he's he's still, you know, like this eager little puppy trying to, trying to do his best and please everybody. So that was my argument, the fox. Your argument is is the fox that the analogy with him and the fox is that he <laughs> <laughs> he was just a nicer person. Well, wait, are we at the a... third argument or the fourth one? Uh, maybe I would say that he was he was is... a champion for underdogs. <laughs> that would be my fourth argument. Okay, um, I'm going to give that argument a six. <laughs> you lost some of your own commitment to that argument halfway through. Okay, my fourth argument is that uh, Hemingway's works are uh, they're much better film adaptations of Hemingway's of Hemingway's novels. Huh. Uh, you would think that there would be a great version of The Great Gatsby, and instead, Mia Farrow. What are you talking about? Oh, <laughs> The Mia Farrow, that movie with Mia Farrow, Robert Redford in his prime, and written by, do you know who it was written by? Oh, God, don't tell me. Francis Ford Coppola. Wow. And instead, it was a complete train wreck of a movie. It's lifeless and inert, and it might only be uh, equaled in a, in a negative sense by the Leonardo DiCaprio version, which is similarly, I guess it's to to borrow from Zelda, they both fell as flat as one of Aunt Jemima's famous pancakes. Hemingway, on the other hand, did not have a lot of great movies based on his works, but he did have To Have and Have Not, which uh, he owes a debt of gratitude to William Faulkner, who, who punched up the screenplay. Right. But that is certainly the best film that either of them, either Hemingway or Fitzgerald, had made out of their works. It's it's the classic with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. And Hemingway had a few other decent movies as well, but that one definitely is. It's a classic movie, and Fitzgerald never approached that kind of success with adaptations of his works being made into film. 
I, I I will throw in that the reason that is the case is because um, Fitzgerald was a, a, a more of a stylist, and mm. uh, his language was essentially not really filmable. Mm. So, and oh. I, I I think at the beginning of uh, Tender as the Night, you know, it's uh, descriptions like the down in the Riviera, the the hotel and its bright tan prayer rug of a beach were one. <laughs> I mean, no, you know, you, you could try to film it, but yeah, I just noticed that line the other night too. I was thinking, uh, yeah. and I was thinking it was pretty good. And there's so much uh, anthropomorphizing. Listen to this on the pleasant shore of the French Riviera, about halfway between Marseille and the Italian border, stands a large, proud, rose-colored hotel. Proud, proud hotel. <laughs> <laughs> there's so there's so much like that. But I I, I agree. The Lauren Bacall and Tab and Have Not. That's a great film. It's a great film, and you know you would think that Fitzgerald's visuals. You know, yeah. he he does have great visuals and uh there's the famous scene in The Great Gatsby where they get where Gatsby's pulling the shirts out and you know, there's things you can do with that. But I think one of the problems, this might be why the films never quite come off, is Fitzgerald in, in Gatsby, the characters aren't aren't that real. Other than maybe the narrator, the other characters are kind of pushed around to serve mm-hmm. the plot. Gatsby is certainly cipher the relationship between uh gatsby and and daisy is is not really well developed and maybe there just wasn't enough human relationships for the filmmakers to work with well well, i'm down to my last reason you are and i you know i I think of flannery o'connor has a quote that said the problem with and she she went to iowa's writer's workshop she said the problem with uh, MFA programs is that they don't discourage more people to give up writing. <laughs> <laughs> so, with, with that in mind, I and it's th- this is a close one, but I I think that Hemingway, I think that Fitzgerald has inspired more people to try their hand at writing than Hemingway. Ooh. When I think of, basically, he was the, the he and Zelda were the first modern pre-Hollywood celebrity couple. Mm-hmm. So they lived this dazzling life. Like he had an affair with a famous actress, Lois Moran. She had an affair with this handsome French aviator. Right. They lived in the Riviera. <laughs> they they hung out with people who had no jobs. They were yep. writing fiction, publishing fiction. Um, they, they would... The parties. Do, yeah, the midnight dips in the Plaza Hotel Fountain. And, yeah. Um probably put into people's minds, hey, if only I become a writer, then yeah. all this could be mine. Yeah, he they were like pop stars. Yeah. I mean, imagine what they'd be like today. They'd be all over the internet for their exploits and everything, living large. I, I'm not sure you're right about this, though, because <laughs> I think Hemingway has inspired a ton of people who were drawn to the, the short sentences and the the terseness and the, you know, his masculine bullfighting, war, solitude, tragedy, uh, grace under pressure, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I don't know, when I was teaching creative writing, I saw a lot of 
18-year-old, 19-year-old guys who came in full of Hemingway, ready to go. Maybe that's a good segue to making the show into a positive aspect of both their writers and throwing into the ring recommendations. Because I, I was when you were talking about his short stories, I was just remembering how much I love The Hills Like White Elephants. Mm. Mm-hmm. And the best use of, I think, like nine pleases in a row where she goes, will you please, 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 please stop talking. <laughs> I think that's, that's a brilliant short story. That's a good one. And A Clean, Well-Lighted Place is one that I remember reading it and being kind of blown away by it. And then at one point thinking that I had progressed beyond it. And I just reread right. it just a few minutes before. Uh, we started and probably for the first time in, I don't know, 20 years or something. And I thought, you know, this is actually pretty good. <laughs> um, certainly that kind of writing uh, inspired whole generations. I don't know if it does anymore. I kind of felt a little bit like in the end, I kind of went through all of this and thought, you know, I don't know that anybody really needs to read either of these two guys anymore. <laughs> it's a historical curiosity, but I, I don't know that they're essential. Uh, I think, I well, I, I will say Tender is the Night for me is, a, is, is an essential read. And I think if, if people are curious about Zelda and his relationship to Zelda, hmm. rather than read any memoir, you should read Tender is the Night because the, the way the the book is set up it it starts out with this it starts off in the riviera where zelda is a little washed up which i love that she's washed up because she's 28 Mm -hmm. so she's washed up and the fitzgerald stand-in dick diver has his eyes on this young actress rosemary and then you flash back to the sanatorium where uh dick diver is the doctor and his patient is the zelda stand-in nicole diver Mm mm-hmm and the scenes, the sanitarian scenes are beautiful. Mm. And <laughs> you've always liked sanitarium books. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I was just looking at, you know, we're planning a summer trip this year, and I was looking oh, no. at, I was looking at the Alps, and I was thinking, like, one of these days, I've got to get to Davos Platz. <laughs> I just have to get there. So the International Sanitarium Berghof. Yeah. Where Magic Mountain was was um, took place, and, right? Uh, but yeah, I think Tender is the Night really stands up. I, I've had friends who who've told me, "Oh, I just read Revolutionary Road and really enjoyed it." And I've told them, "Oh, you should read Tender is the Night," and then they're just blown away by Tender is hmm. the Night. Let me give you my last argument, which <laughs> uh, is pertinent to this. I knew you were going to come in with your your cannons blazing with Tender is the Night. My last argument uh, against Fitzgerald, and if, if you notice, there's very few of these that are pro-Hemingway. Almost everything I have is just against Fitzgerald. <laughs> there, there's some things I just could not defend in Hemingway. So it's it's hard for me to ever be unequivocally in favor of something because then you think, oh, yeah, but then there's that scene where the guy is bragging about his manhood or something and... <laughs> and uh, kind of undermines everything I was trying to say positively. But the thing I had for my final argument was that Fitzgerald seemed to lack judgment. And this can go from the Pat Hobby stories, but also, you know, Hemingway 
he he said in a Paris Review article that he had written thirty nine endings to a farewell to arms. And wow. I always I always thought that that was you know. And then they said, "Why did you write so many?" And he said, "I couldn't get the words right." And it was it was viewed as this, oh, it was a you know this amazing craftsman and the the stylist and his dedication to his art and all of this. And I I remember hearing the story and reading the interview and thinking, how do I, he's probably making that up? You know, like <laughs> like what a great story, but how do we know? You know, and then it turned out that his grandson found uh, 47 uh, discarded endings. Wow. And it turned out that they were, you know, that he actually had written that many endings. And I was, first of all, astonished that it was true. And then secondly, according to the grandson anyway, he picked the best one. The, the one in, in A Farewell to Arms really was the best one. And Fitzgerald, it seems like every time he revote, every time he rewrote something or revised or had a change of thought, it seems like things got worse. I mean, I don't think the, uh, I think The Last Tycoon is a better title than The Love of The Last Tycoon. I think that was a, I think that was kind of a mistake. And I think the, the the biggest example of this is Tender is the Night, where he had all of those revisions and mm -hmm. they came out with the two versions of Tender is the Night and he was he was convinced that it would be better if you didn't start on the beach with the girl if you started with Dick Diver. Mm -hmm. And I just reread those two beginnings and I still I disagree. I, I think it the book starting with, with the pages about Dick Diver, it just does not appeal to me and I just think it was a mistake for him. And anyway, for a book to have two beginnings, it kind of reminded me of that saying about, you know, in the NFL, if you have two quarterbacks, it really means you have no quarterback. <laughs> and I just thought of all the, the great books there are, how many of them have two different beginnings where the author was kind of wavering about which way to start the book? I can't think of another example. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll concede about the alternate tenders and <laughs> version, which I did read also. And uh, yeah, the, I think um, was it Malcolm Crowley or Maxwell yep. Perkins? One of them uh, um, had to convince Fitzgerald to to go with the uh, you know the the flashback. Yeah. Uh, so, but and and uh, yeah, I, I see your point about. Hemingway, I, I had a, I had an old writing teacher tell me that a great exercise, uh, with any short story is take a short story and try to cut three sentences mm -hmm. and see if the story changes. And the only writer you can't do that to is Hemingway. So. Yeah, I think that's probably true. It, it, reading it again, I felt like the, I think they were both innovative or they both had a style, a particular style. Hemingway's feels to me like it's holding up a little better. Fitzgerald feels a little more dated. Um, just a lot of the language and a lot of the the expressions and, and some of the narration. He had kind of a, a chatty narrator. Hemingway, the, the spareness of it, even though it's become a bit of a cliche and it's maybe no longer as fresh as it was when it first came out. It still is very readable and the emphasis on the plain language and the, and the short words, what makes Hemingway unreadable is where 
the uh, sentiment or the the whole project feels uh, misguided or that we've moved beyond. But as far as stylistically, he really still holds up. It's easy to edit Fitzgerald in your mind. You can you can read a page and cross out ten words on just about every page. But Hemingway, sometimes you you do kind of find yourself admiring the way he chiseled the prose into place. I I, I have not recommended Hemingway to anyone in probably in the last <laughs> few years, but I have recommended Fitzgerald, so I'll, I'll throw that in. Okay. <laughs> well, I lost track of the score. I I uh, I didn't score my last two, and I didn't score your last one. So we'll just call it a draw, I guess. Um, and I think that's going to do it. I think we came up with 10 pretty good arguments. And Thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Everyone out there, go reread or read Babylon Revisited, please. <laughs> a final plug. Okay. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, that's it for this episode. That was a fun one. Mike is so devious. I redid the math, and he beat me by half a point. I'm Jack Wilson. You can contact me at jackwilsonauthor at gmail.com. That's J-A-C-K-E, wilsonauthor at gmail.com. Or you can leave a comment at jackwilson.com. I have a vacation coming up soon. I'll try to keep this flow of podcasts going while I'm gone. But if I miss a week, you'll know why. You can picture me tramping through the Icelandic countryside, reading away, getting ready for some fresh podcasts when we return. And hey, this is the part of the podcast where I usually ask you to subscribe. And I recommend that you do so in order to keep up with all of the episodes of the History of Literature. But you know how this works. You're an old pro at podcasts. Maybe I don't need to ask this anymore. So instead, I'll just give you a gentle reminder. A gentle, gentle reminder. The gentlest reminder of all. I won't even say any words. I'm just going to... Open my eyes wide and give you a knowing nod. There it was. That was the reminder. That's the subscription stick. Now, here's the subscription carrot. We have a Hamlet episode coming up and another one on MFA programs. You won't want to miss them. Okay, that's it. My thanks to Mike for appearing today. And to you, as always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.
Thank you.